Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey my friends, I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead, after being knocked down, is now available for pre-order. I'll make sure the link is available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Today, my friends, I'm delighted to welcome the legendary James Altucher to the Storybox. Now, this conversation actually took place last year, and unfortunately, I didn't didn't get around to releasing it, but I thought, why not release it this year? Because it is honestly a fantastic conversation, and I, I want you guys to enjoy all the wisdom and the advice along with the stories that James shares. But for those of you that don't know who James is, he's an entrepreneur, a very successful one at that. He's an angel investor as well. He's achieved the rank of chess master, believe it or not. And he's the author of over 20 books and the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Choose Yourself, which uh, for those of you that don't know what that book is, I encourage you guys to go and get it. It is a pretty good book, if I do say so myself. He started over 20 companies and believe this, he is successful because 17 of which have actually failed, but he's learned a lot along the way. And he says, if you've ever if you ever been stuck in a job you hate, in a house you can't afford, in a life that you don't want, in your own depressed mind, anything, he wants to help you. Why? Because he gets it. He's been there and he wants you to... He wants you to know how to free yourself. So, because James did the exact same thing, he was able to free himself. So, maybe he's able to help you guys do the exact same thing. He's also uh, the host of the show, uh, the James Aldous Show, which is uh, hosted many amazing guests and, and high caliber people like Tony Robbins, Mark Cuman, Peter Thiel. Ariana Huffington, Coolio, and many, many more. And his podcast boasts of over 30 million plus downloads, which is something to really aspire to in all honesty. Um, but I hope that you guys really, really enjoy this one. If you do, go and share it around to all your friends and your family. Let everyone know about this one. James is a very deep and wise thinker 
and you're going to get a lot out of that during this conversation, I think. So do yourself a favor, share it around to your friends and family. Don't forget to let me know what you think by either subscribing or leaving a rating and review over an Apple podcast too. Just goes a long way in supporting this show as well as my guests too, just letting them know what you think. And it helps boost the, the rankings in, in Apple Podcasts and, and so to speak, getting getting the word out there more and more, which is never a bad thing at all. And also, my friends, my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down, is now available for pre-order. Links will be in the show notes below to make it easy for you guys. I hope that you can get a copy to show your support to myself, uh, but also you, because uh, I wrote the book for you and to help each and every one of you soar in your own lives. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to choose yourself today as we are going to journey into the story box and listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than James Altucher. Jay, thanks so much for inviting me here. I'm really excited and uh, looking forward to it. So am I. Uh, like I was saying off air that I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since uh, November of 2019. And... Uh, Honestly, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Before we dive into How your- How do you feel? It's been almost a year you've been doing your podcast. Well, probably more than a year you started recording episodes. So how's, it, how's, how's the first year? It's a bit surreal, to be honest with you. Like, I, I never thought that I'd be able to do this uh, and speak to amazing people like yourself that are doing incredible things, nor any of the other people that I've been able to speak to either. Uh, and just looking back on it now- from the humble beginnings that it was from my friends and family members and uh, just asking random people, uh, hey, do you, do you believe in my vision? Do you want to help? And them saying yes and believing in me to now being able to speak to you, James. So it's, it's very surreal. Yeah, I always tell people you can, the one reason, one great reason to do a podcast is like, I can't call people up who I don't know and say, hey, can you just talk to me for an hour? Yeah. But if I say, oh, I noticed you have a new book coming out. You want to come on my podcast, blah, blah, blah. You know, then they'll say yes. And then I can talk to whoever I want for an hour. Mm. That's, that's so true. I'm, I'm a curious human being anyway. And what I've, when I first started this, I was so nervous to even speak to people that had a yeah. following of like 5,000 people. Now I'm speaking to people with over a million following and like just, I love, um, I love asking questions. I love learning. I love that growth aspect and I love hearing stories first and foremost. And I heard you on Lewis Howe's podcast, on Jay Shetty's podcast, on many other amazing people's podcasts. And I'm like, this guy has an incredible, incredible story. I, I need to be persistent in order to somehow reach him. And as, uh, as fate would have it, here we are today. And uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to asking you some questions that have been on the forefront of my mind for such a long time. One, okay. of, them, one of them being, James, um, I normally ask this question to all my guests at the start, but I'm curious to know your answer to it because I mentioned it in the, in the beginning about how in order to achieve success, but what does success now look like to you? Well, I think, you know, success is a weird word because 
I think some people say, oh man, if I make a million dollars, that's success. I'm successful. Or man, if I get on the New York Times bestseller list, or if I have a TV show, or if my if I get a if I'm the CEO, or if I get a great job, you know, there's no real answer. So I always get back to what's the foundation. So so the foundation is because you can't you if if you're if you're let's look at a couple of things. If you're physically healthy, that's a good thing. That means you can wake up, you're not in pain, you 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 know anything is possible during the day because your your physical health, your body is not holding you back. Uh, if you're emotionally healthy, that's a great thing because oh maybe your relationship with your spouse or or you know girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever is going well. You have good friends. Uh, you like your community that you live in. You know that's a great thing. You could be, you know, that's a good chunk of happiness during the day. You're in a community uh, and, and, you know, everything's going pretty well. Not that you always get along with everyone, but things are going pretty well. So that's emotional health. If you have creative health, that means whatever it is you're interested in and, and, and good at and getting better at, you'll be creative. Like if you love playing, you know, poker or chess, you'll be, you'll be more creative than your opponents. If you love writing, you'll have creative ideas. If you're an entrepreneur, you'll come up with ideas nobody's ever thought of. So if you're creatively healthy, that's a great thing. If you're spiritually healthy, and I'll explain what that means, it's not like you, or it might mean, but it might not mean you get on your knees and pray to God or Mecca or whatever, or it doesn't necessarily mean you you meditate. It just means the simplest definition might be you're not trying to control the things that are out of your control. Like, for me, if I lost a lot of money a couple of years ago, I don't, I move, I move beyond it. I, I don't regret and I don't think it's going to happen again uh, or it might, but I, you know, I've learned and that's like spiritually healthy, like surrendering to the things you can't control. I can't control the weather. And so if the weather happens, you know, the only thing you can really say is good. And that's, if you have those four things, physical health, emotional health, creative health, spiritual health, then forget about success for a second. How can you fail? <laughs> like what could, I mean, yeah, a car can hit you, but you know, chances are with all those four things, you have less chance of a car hitting you than if you don't have those four things and so on. Your, your spouse can cheat on you. But again, if you have those four things that will affect you less than if you don't have those four things, you could lose some money in the stock market today. All right, no problem, because you're creative, you have lots of things going on, and you're healthy, you go play tennis at night or play basketball or whatever, you're creative, you jot down ideas for new ways to make money, and you lost the money, so you're spiritually healthy, you can't. You have no control over what happened in the past. So again, it's harder to fail if you have that foundation. And then above that, like imagine it like a pyramid, like that's the, the first layer of the pyramid, and then there's a bunch of layers above, and everybody can decide what it means for them to do those layers. Like, okay, I have that foundation. Now I want to write another chapter in a book. Then maybe that's the next layer. Now I want to come up with a business idea and work on that business idea. That might be the next layer. Now I want to make some money or meet someone who I'm going to fall in love with or whatever. That might be the next layer. But the foundation, you can't get those other layers, however you define it, unless you have the foundation. Also, the foundation is the one thing you can't change. You need that foundation to build above it. Else you've got no infrastructure inside mm. that. And that's the infrastructure for success. 
I like that. You mentioned I was reading on your website in the about section how you said that discipline, persistence, and psychology are important uh, to achieve success. And you mentioned there that you got to be healthy uh, in terms of mind, body, and spirit. And I'm curious, why is these three that you picked, especially persistence, why are those three important for achieving like mind, body, spirit in terms of success? Yeah. So with persistence, you got to be, it's, it's one of those words that you have to be careful with because everyone says, you know, persistence, you know, you know, you get nowhere with persist, without persistence, but you could also persist on the wrong things. Yes. So if I have a business that's not working, I, I shouldn't just say to myself, oh gosh, you know, James said persist, so I better keep working on it. No, if it's not working, quit. But persist in always trying to improve this foundation, always trying to improve your ability to come up with good ideas, always trying to improve your relationships with your friends, family, community, social media network, country, world, whatever. Persist in, you know, learning how to, you know, roll with the punches, persist with uh, being in good health and so on. Those are the things you can't give up on. You can't, you, you can't give up and say, ugh, that's it. I've just tried 20 businesses in a row. I'm just dropping out. I'm just giving up. You can't do that. So, so persistence is a tricky word. You have to, you have to have the knowledge, the, the emotional knowledge, the physical health, the creative knowledge, and so on to know what it is you should persist with. But if you love something, and, there's, and it doesn't matter if it makes money or not, you want to get better. You have a setback, a, a failure. By the way, anything that's worth loving, you're also going to fail quite a bit at. So you have to be able to persist to get good. So let's say I love, I don't know, uh, let's say I'm 50 years old and suddenly I decide I want to be a, a rapper. Okay. And everyone says to you, what? You're a 50-year-old guy who's never rapped in his life. How are you going to be, you don't know anything about music. How are you going to be a rapper? All right. Well, but I love it. I want to try. Um, so maybe I practice writing lyrics. I listen to a lot of rap music. So I hear the, the cadence and the rhythms and the rhyme schemes and, and so on. And I'm like, oh, I like, I like how Ice Cube does it. I like how JDZ does it. I'm going to imitate them. I'm going to try to learn from them. They're going to be like my virtual mentors. So you start doing it. And let's say then you write your own lyrics and now you want to show your friends. And so you, you book a gig at a bar and all your friends are there and you totally bomb. Like you, you, you just, it's horrible. You're, you're embarrassed. Your friends are all laughing. They think it's just a big joke and it's awful, but you love it. So persistence is the next day waking up and like, oh, that felt so bad. That felt like failure. I could, I had nightmares. All my friends are calling me up today laughing. Persistence is getting back up, writing more lyrics, mm -hmm. listening to a recording of what you did the night before so you could see what went wrong and what went right and just doing it again. And then if you fall out of love with it, that's fine too. You know, maybe you take a break or maybe you fall out of love with it permanently and, um, 
you know, persistence is just when, when you love doing something and you have a good feeling about it, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It's you keep improving at it. Like, for instance, for the past five or six years, I've been doing stand-up comedy. Now, I don't make any money at it. I mean, I do a little now, but it's not something where that's how I make a living. But uh, I, I there were times, in the, particularly in the beginning, where, man, I was heckled, I was booed, I bombed in front of friends. It was horrible. It was a nightmare. And I would think to myself, that's it. I'm never going to do this again. But then you wake up in the morning and you're like, no, nah, I, I love it still. And so you try to get better again. Like I watch the video of what I did. I listen to comedians. I try to write jokes. And then I just go back up there, even though it's painful. And again, this is a critical thing to know, which is that anything worth doing means almost by definition that you're going to fail at it. Otherwise, if it was so easy, everybody would be doing it. And then, you know, it's not really worth doing then. If all 6 billion people on the planet are doing something, how are you going to be special? You can't. I really like that because for me, I have on my Instagram bio, this is my philosophy that I live by. And it's one of the biggest reasons why I'm able to do what I, what I do today and get where I am today. I'm still not anywhere there, but anyway... It's be persistent to remain consistent and the things that you want. And yeah. I think for me, I learned that consistency was the flow on effect of me being persistent. And you're 100% right that people can be persistent at all the wrong things, all the wrong areas in life. That was me for a long period of time until I realized to reverse engineer it and say, hang on a minute, this actually works for the things that I really want. And it may not be in the end, James, it may not be what we desire it to be, but it still damn works. <laughs> At the end. Yeah. Like, like from, from 2002 to 2010, I was really obsessed. I had lost a whole bunch of money and I was really obsessed with making it back. So I w literally went into the money business. Like I started running a hedge fund. I started writing about stocks. I started a, what's called a fund of hedge funds. I was trying to do deals and I hated it. I hated it so much, but I thought this is the fastest way to make my money back. Is hedge do well as a hedge fund. It's a, it's the road is paved with gold, but I hated it so much. I hated the people. I hated the ideas. Not, not everybody, but I'm generalizing, but I never really felt happy with what I was doing. I didn't feel like I was improving the world or anything or, or satisfying my creative urges. Maybe I'm the writing a little bit, but you know, it was like, ah, I just, even thinking about it, I, I just hated it so much. And so one day I decided, you know what? I'm not going to do it anymore. And I'm just going to write, and I'm not going to even write about stocks that much. I, I, I like actually writing about stocks, but I'm going to write about other stuff. I'm going to write about my own personal story, like, like as if they were short stories, as if they were fiction, like that quality of writing. I love writing and I love reading. So I'm going to, I'm going to write as good as, or a, a better than my favorite writers. I'm going to learn how to write. And, and I've been, I had been writing for 15 years at that point, but I, but I, I wanted to write like high quality stuff about real things that were important to me. So my ups and downs and how I bounce back and other people's stories and things I've learned from them. So I started doing that. And I noticed, even though I already had like a pretty big audience from all my financial stuff, my audience multiplied by 10 because I was writing about stuff that was really important to me 
And I was writing about failure and success and what I was learning from other events or people or whatever. And so my audience multiplied by 10 or 20 or 30. And I loved what I was doing. I wasn't making a dime at it. It's very hard to make money writing, but I loved it. And so I did it every day. And because of that, over the next 10 years, which now is 10 years later, I, I was really finding a lot of success because of my writing. Not that I was getting paid to write a blog post. No one ever gets paid really to write a blog post, but I would just opportunities would come up and my creativity was getting better and better. And my emotional life was getting better and better. So I was happier. People wanted to give me opportunities. And, and if I liked them, I would work at them or I would just get good opportunities to invest in. And then I would continue writing. I, I write every day still. I've written like two articles today. Wow. And that led to podcasting, which my podcast makes money, but I always pour it back into improving the quality of the podcast. So I have not personally made a dime on my podcast. But again, it leads to other things. When you do the things you love, even for no money, it leads to opportunities to make money. Yeah. The money's always going to come. Like, And I think if we chase it, then it will come. But oftentimes, if it's not what we love doing, we can feel miserable. So what's the point? Yeah. And I had a couple of questions coming out of that. One of them was, um, you mentioned creativity and you're able to be more creative and you're able to write. And I'm curious to know what does creativity actually mean to you and how can we be more creative in our lives? Yeah, I mean, creativity is really interesting because, you know, you could be creative and say, oh, I just like doing creativity for my own self. You know, but ultimately when people are creative, they want other people to see what they're creative at and they want to be good at it. Like, you know, I can maybe, let's say I love painting. All right, I could paint every day. Maybe I'm horrible at it and uh, I don't care. But most of the time when, when you really love something and you want to be creative at it, A, you want to get better and B, you want people to like what you did. It feels good when people say, oh, that's really beautiful or that's really artistic. And finally, it's kind of nice if you can make money at it. So there's a lot of different ways to define creativity. Um, but I'm, I'm going to go down one direction. There's other directions you can go. Mm. But let's divide creativity into three parts. So there's the skills of being creative of like, how are you creative? And what does creativity mean? How do you be creative in general? So there's the skills like, how do I paint? What, you know, what's a good painting? How do I get better at painting? Then there's the, the then there's the domain. There's like, you know, the world of painting. So like, I'm going to study, here's what Picasso did. Here's what Van Gogh did. Here's what Andy Warhol did. You know, here's what all the virtual mentors that I admire do. And, and then you start getting better and better in, in the domain of painting. And then there's the field. So, okay, where, where's the closest art gallery? Who are the current top painters? Could, do I have anything where my stuff's like in, as interesting as theirs, but even more unique or whatever. So you understand the field because the more you understand your field, the more you'll not be able to judge how to get success. Oh, this is the biggest, you know, art dealer. I better, I better meet him and show him my stuff. So you know the field, so your stuff gets out there. You know the domain, so you can get knowledge. 
And then you, you work on creativity. You know, what, what does that mean? Well, you, you buy a, a, a bunch of paintbrushes and you play around and you experiment and you look at paintings and you just get more creative. Uh, you come up with ideas. So one way I exercise creativity is if someone asks me, well, I'll put it different. If every day, and I've been doing, this is the discipline part. Every day, every morning, for as long as I can remember, I write down 10 ideas a day. I don't write down 10 good ideas. I don't write down 10 ideas for businesses that I'm going to start or investments. I just pick a category and I write down 10 ideas. It could be 10 ways to, um, you know, 10 different types of fashion lines I want to start. I've never started a fashion line, but what the heck? I can come up with ideas. 10 ways for Google to improve their search engine. 10 ways I can write better. 10 ways to make money from a podcast. 10 ways, you know, I could, uh, uh, you know, 10 jokes I want to try for stand-up comedy or, or 10 books I think are the best books ever. So well, that what that does is, is it exercises my idea muscle. A lot of people think, oh, I really want to be creative, but I want to just be by the Eiffel Tower and in Paris and set up and it's a beautiful summer day and I set up my sketchboard and I start painting and inspiration will hit. No, that's not how it works. That's like saying, I want to run a marathon, but I don't really need to run until the day of the marathon. So you're going to, you're going to crap out after the first mile. You won't be able to run the marathon. Uh, ideas, the idea muscle has to be constantly exercised because like any other muscle, it atrophies within a few weeks. If you don't walk for a few weeks, you'll need physical therapy to walk. You're, that's how fast muscles atrophy. Same thing with the idea muscle. So I keep my ideal muscle exercised by simply writing 10 ideas a day. And sometimes, or most of the time, sorry, I'm just reaching for something. I'll, I'll just do it in like a waiter's pad because it's easy to just write. You can't write a novel in a waiter's pad. You just write it's very thin. You just write, you can put it in your pocket, you write 10 ideas down. So I always read a little bit when I start the day, just to get the kind of my mental juices flowing. And then I'll, I'll think of an idea of, of, of what the category is. What am I going to write 10 ideas about? Like this one's titled cities 2.0. So this could be, here's 10 ideas about the future of cities. Um, what else do I got in this pad? Um, this is a, these both these pads I just started. Oh, here's something. Um, I can't I can't read my <laughs> handwriting. Oh, that's the other thing too. I never refer back to ideas. All great writers, you can't read their actual handwriting because yeah. they're so fast in writing down their idea. They got to get it out of their head. I think I think this is like a weird history of 2020 is what I wrote. Like 10 pivotal moments of 2020 that are like science fiction. And then um, let me see what I wrote today. Someone, someone asked a question like what makes a good marriage? And I'm no expert, but I just wrote down 10 ideas for how to, one can improve their marriage. Oh, another thing. Somebody uh, was asking me, they're about to go into lockdown mm -hmm. uh, again. Like I guess they're from England maybe, and they're going to go into a severe, England might be going into a severe lockdown. And he was get feeling really depressed. And so he asked in this one Facebook group that I'm in, how do I deal with this? And so I wrote down 10 things he should do 
in in this coming up lockdown so he doesn't feel as bad. Now, uh, maybe he takes my advice. Maybe my ideas are good. Maybe they're not. It doesn't matter to me. The important thing is I'm exercising the idea muscle. And the more I exercise the idea muscle anyway, the better the ideas will be. Mm. That's cool. I like that. <laughs> one One question that I have coming out of that is what has been the worst piece of advice you've ever received or you've ever given someone that you regret? Yeah, interesting. Um, the worst piece of advice I've ever received. You know, I'm very much about what what uh, one of my friends, Jocko Willing, calls extreme responsibility. And I just mentioned that because he wrote, or an extreme ownership. And I mentioned that because he wrote a book with that title, Extreme Ownership. So nobody ever gives me bad advice. It's up to me whether to take that advice. They might offer it, but it's up to me if I take it. And then it's no longer on them, it's on me. So so it's hard to remember because I don't, I try not to take, I try not to own bad advice because it's 100% my fault. That's why whenever I think of anything bad that's happened to me, I don't blame the people who maybe got me into it, I blame myself. Like if I got into into a company on someone's advice and the company didn't work out, it's all me. And then that way I can analyze what in my decision-making went wrong. If, if, if part of my decision-making was, oh, well, I just shouldn't have listened to this guy, then that doesn't really solve the problem. It, I have to go one level deeper. Now, it might be the case, don't ever take advice from that guy again, but I still have to be able to know why did I take it what were the red flags? Why didn't I pay attention to them? How could have I improved my decision making? Who else could have I consulted about the, the advice? By the way, this is kind of how an, a 10 idea list is formed and I improve from that. But um, but let me just think for a second, worst advice ever. Um, I think I think my mom gave me advice not to ever try to start a business because she was very, you know, to start a business and to be an entrepreneur, you have to be risk averse. You can't, people think entrepreneurship is about taking risks. No, it's about having a decent idea. And then from that point on getting rid of all the risks, don't start a business unless you've mitigated as many risks as possible. Try to get rid of hundreds of risks if you can. But my mom was very risk averse. I had a really good job and she thought I would rise up at this job if I just stuck with it. And she was very, you know, she was proud of me. She wanted me to stay at this job, but I did not take her advice because I did not view jobs as safe. I felt like I'm always at the whims of corporate politics where, or I'm at the whims of my boss's mood or I'm at the whims of the industry or I'm at the whims of the economy. And, you know, look at the, in the United States during this economic lockdown, United States has 128 million jobs, 55 million people during this lockdown filed for unemployment insurance. So jobs are riskier than being an entrepreneur. And again, being an entrepreneur means getting rid of risks. So a lot of entrepreneurs I know remained entrepreneurs because they've already been through the process of eliminating risk. But a lot of employees I know were fired. Mm -hmm. So so that was bad advice. I uh maybe 
I don't know, down every level, you know, who you, who, who, you know, if someone introduces me to someone and I fall in love and other people say, yeah, she's so beautiful. You should definitely go out with her. Sometimes though that advice turns out very poorly. <laughs> so, uh, but again, I don't blame the other people. I could see their reasoning. It's up to me. Good advice is, um, you know, I think it's very important and I'll go, I'll go to my dad. Now, my dad's advice was always be as honest as possible. Like in every situation, business relationships, you know, always be upfront and be honest, not radical, honest. Like, don't just go up to people and say, you know, you're ugly. Like, don't be radically honest because there's no purpose to that, but be constructively honest. And, and, and if you make mistakes, admit them and take responsibility for them. You know, my, I remember one time, and this was very painful for me, but I was a, a newspaper boy when I was a little kid, a newspaper boy. I don't know if you have, you probably have these in Australia, but I would deliver newspapers, you know, every day, every afternoon after school, I would deliver the local paper to, you know, 300 different homes. And then on the weekends, I go around and collect money, collect that week's, you know, payments. Everybody paid once a week. And one time, this one guy, he owed $5 or, or eight, he owed like $8. This is a long time ago. He owed like $8 and he thought he was giving me a 10, but he gave me a 20. And I came home and I was like, look, I got this $12 tip. And my dad was like, okay, so, and I was like, yeah, but he only owed me $8. He gave me a $12 tip. I think he meant to give me a 10. And I was happy. Right? I was like, made it 12 extra dollars or 10 extra dollars than I normally would make. And my dad said, okay, get in the car. And I'm like, why, where are we going? And he's like, get in the car. And I realized what he was doing. And I'm like, no, I'm not getting in the car. And he's like, you're getting in the car. And I'm like, dad, please. I, w I don't want to get in the car. It's, it, you know, his son is in my grade. This is like really embarrassing. My dad forced me to get in the car. We drive to the guy who gave the extra tip and knock on the door. The guy in my grade who was like the class bully or whatever, he's like, yeah. And I'm like, is your dad here? And his dad comes and his dad like, um, I, I already paid, right? Like, what's what's up? And I, I had to say, look, I realized you paid $10 more. Here's $10. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah, all right, thanks. And he just takes a dollar and closes the door. And then that was that. But I was like horribly embarrassed i didn't want to do it and but i but look that's the one story about being paper boy i remember other than asking out every girl on my paper route and being rejected by all of them which is the other thing i remember from that paper route but uh yeah so and honesty is really important because then people know that if they need something or if they want to work with somebody whose opinion they can trust who's 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 not going to screw them over, who's whatever, they know that they could trust me. And so when I started writing this really personal stuff, like 10 years ago, I would write how I failed at this, I failed at that, I messed up this, you know, I would write all these really, nobody was writing this at the time. Now people write like this. I don't want to say I, I started that, but it just became a thing that people would write about failures. And, um, 
I was writing all these stories and people were like, why are you doing this? No one's going to ever work with you again. You're writing about everything you've ever done wrong. You seem like an idiot. And I'm like, I just love doing this. This is what storytelling is about. And, but then what happened was, is that I got more because of my writing, I got more business opportunities than I ever had before in my life. And I, I live, I live off of those opportunities now. So, you know, um, I, I built wealth because of these opportunities created by nothing but putting on display my extreme honesty. That's a better word than radical honesty. And again, honesty should be constructive. If you say to me, hey, how did I do as an interviewer? And I'm not going to say to you, um, you know, something negative that just hurts your feelings and then hang up. Uh, because A, you're a good interviewer, I'm I'm enjoying this, and B, no matter what, I'll try to offer something constructive because we both get better from that. Like, I'll be a better interviewer by giving constructive advice, and maybe you'll be better, or maybe you'll say, oh, that's the worst advice I ever got, <laughs> and it starts all over. I appreciate you saying that, James. I can relate. I love the, the honesty aspect, like, because I have, for longest time, the way I've been brought up, my parents have always taught me and instilled in me the value of your character is number one above all else. Your integrity is part of your, your character. You've got to value that. Um, and I've always tried as, very, as best as I possibly can to be utmost upfront, honest, you know, not be disrespectful, not do all that sort of stuff. And I remember a quick story that I, I, had, um, I was picking up the shopping and uh, I didn't pay for something. And... It didn't come out of my account and I, I regularly check my account and I noticed that I didn't pay for it and I, I felt so bad inside, but normally people would just say, oh, I didn't, it's okay. Um, but I went down to the shop and I, I asked for the manager. The manager came in and I said, look, here's my account. Here are the items that I bought. I didn't pay for them. Can I please pay for them? There was a lady beside me. She overhears the conversation and she's like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, who are you? And I'm like, excuse me, what do you mean? And she's like, I have never heard of somebody that has not paid for their items come back and say they have not paid for their items and want to pay for their items again. And I was like, oh, she's like, where do you come from? Like, and I was like, um, I just want to do the right thing. And she's like, that made my day. And the staff member was laughing at me because she's like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, who are you? <laughs> but it just, it just, that honesty aspect, James, it is an amazing, amazing thing. Cause you just don't, you may not expect the kind of reaction that people have to it. I like, I didn't expect that lady to react the way that she did. And she thanked me. She's like, I was having a bad day. That just made my day. And I was like, wow. Right. So, so think about that. Like, like you could have easily said, oh, they don't know. It's, it's, it's a big corporation maybe mm. who owns the store, the chain of stores. They're never, they're not going to miss $5 or whatever, or $20. Uh, you know, next time I'll just make sure I'm, I, I pay and you know, I won't do that again. You could have said that. And by the way, no one would have faulted you for that. Like that's fine too. That's how life works. Uh, Cause sometimes probably, people don't pay you and it's an accident. You know, you can, you can argue yourself, it all balances it out, but here's, you got some, and also it's not like this was an act of honesty that was going to get you an opportunity or anything like that. No one would know about it, but here's what it got you. 
it got you, um, you were having a bad day. So it got you out of the house and you did this and she was happy. So that's a, a dopamine hit. Like a, you get dopamine when your community, when you start to rise up in the community and, and, and you, your, your brain doesn't know what you did. It just releases dopamine when your community, when you can anticipate somehow greater involvement in the community. So that's a, you get dopamine and it feels good. It's a happy neurochemical. Then you got a compliment, you know, and uh, that feels good. Uh, it made your day. So you got out of a kind of a depressive day. And by the way, you also got a story to tell. Exactly. So that's, that's a, that's a tangible benefit. Stories are valuable. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so you got quite a bit from one honest action. Mm-hmm. And that's why I encourage young people as well, no matter what, what situation you're in, always value your integrity. Cause I was in real estate last year, James. And there was a couple of moments where my boss wanted me to lie for the sake of a sale, for the sake of a million dollar sale. There was one particular uh, day that he couldn't sell this particular property. He had one buyer. She was on the, on the fence. Uh, she was trying to decide whether or not she wanted to spend a lot of money because the property was not worth that amount of money that the buyer, the, the vendors were asking her to pay. But she was a real estate agent too, which was an interesting thing. And my boss was sitting in there, sitting in the room with her for over two hours, just literally yelling and screaming. And that was his tactic for some reason. It never, never really worked that, that well. Um, but he called me into this meeting and he's like, I, wanna, I want you to say that this property, you love this property, I want you to say to this lady that it is worth this amount of money. And I'm like, I can't do that. And he's like, why not? You, you, you're my employee. You, you need to say this. Otherwise, we're not going to sell the house. And I said to him, okay, let me, let me go in there. And I look at her and her face is like she's startled, like she's upset, clearly. And I ask her, do you want this property? And she's like, uh, I do, I do. I really, really do. I said, how much would you pay for it? And she said, I'll pay this much. And she goes, I go to her, well, then that's your offer. And I walk out. And my boss, the look on his face, he almost, he almost fired me on the spot. But I was honest. I didn't, I didn't give her any advice on saying, look, it is this, this much. I asked her and said to her, you pay what you feel like you want to pay. Don't listen to my boss. And then I, I wanted to keep my integrity intact. Well, regardless of what I thought, the main thing was keeping her at a place where she was happy to pay whatever she wanted to pay. My boss yeah, because me after that. <laughs> if, if, if she had agreed to something she wasn't happy with, she was going to get, at some point, she was going to get buyer's remorse before the deal closed. And mm-hmm. so you would waste a lot more time and still the deal wouldn't close. Yeah. So it's not like you can convince, like, like sales techniques are important, but they only go so far. Someone has to actually, you know, want, want to solve some problem that you're solving. And if they don't, maybe you can convince them for a day or two, but in the long run, it's not going to be good. But how did that job end? I, I wasn't fired. I didn't, I confronted him and I said, I'm not going to lie for the sake of a sale. I said, I'm not going to jeopardize who I am as a person, what I believe the sake of a sale, regardless of whether or not you work for, you claim that you work for the vendor. 
I said to him, we work for people regardless. Like real estate agents have always said to me, we work for the sale and, and the deal. And I said, that may be true, but ultimately we work for people. Without people, we wouldn't have the deal because people are the ones that are buying from us or buying something. So I said, you value them, you're honest to them. If they can see it, then they're going to want to come back to you later on. And that's what happened. Like she came to me after later on. She's like, Jay, what do you think of this? She asked me for the advice. She didn't ask my boss because my boss had spent two hours literally verbally abusing the living crap out of her. And I was in the other office listening to the conversation. I couldn't believe it. And then, right. And, and let's say you do this a thousand times, right? What's going to happen? Well, people like her, some percentage of those thousand are going to come back to you and say, Hey Jay, what do you think about this? And other people are going to say, Hey Jay, can you evaluate this business opportunity for me? I'll give you a small percentage of it. Or some people might say, Hey, can you help me ghostwrite this book? I really like how you think about things. I'll, I'll pay you. So who knows? You could maybe, you know, it turns into, again, honesty converts into opportunity. Yeah. Let's say I, you know, every entrepreneur, every businessman has to occasionally fire people and you can fire people in various ways. But if the, the best way is to say, listen, this, this, and this is not really working out. I don't know how you felt about it. I can't afford to, which, you know, for every entrepreneur, you, you can't afford to pay people to do a bad job. And you could say, look, somehow it's not working out. I don't know what it is. Maybe you do, but I can't afford this anymore. I can't afford to work with you, but I'm happy to help you find some other opportunity. I want to continue the relationship somehow. You know, whenever you need me, I'm here. But this particular situation is not working out. I'll give you double the severance that was in your employment contract because I want things to work out for you. But you just have to be, you know, that kind of honesty, then these employees don't start talking behind your back or they don't, you know, or maybe later on they're working for a boss and they can take another boss and they can convince that person to do business with you. You never know how having difficult, com people call conversations, there's a name for it, difficult conversations or crucial conversations. Why are they difficult? They're difficult because it you're saying something negative and you're uncomfortable about being honest about it. Like let's say a breakup or a firing or criticism or, you know, I, I didn't get a job done. You know, I, I messed up, uh, you know, when I was running a hedge fund and calling somebody up and say, Oh, we, we were, we were down this month. I made some mistakes. Uh, that has more value than making money for them. So just being up 1% for somebody in a month, okay, whatever. But if you call them and say, listen, I was down 5%. I miscalculated, you know, Walmart's earnings or whatever. And I learned from it, uh, but you're down 5%. You know, more often than not, they'll give you money right there on the spot to mm -hmm. invest. So you just never, like honesty is is difficult in a lot of situations, but it's it's also very worthwhile for many, many reasons. Mm. And also, James, I forgot to tell you that I wasn't actually paid any commission for any of my sales in that uh, six-month period that I was working in real estate. And I sold a number of properties, multi-million dollar properties, because people liked an honest 
salesperson, if there is such a thing. They like someone that was vulnerable, someone that wanted to just to help for the sake of helping. Um, and that, so, so you weren't paid because, uh, your boss screwed you or. Yeah. So I basically made him a millionaire and I walked away with no commission. I mean, I had a, a base salary, even though it was in my contract to be paid commission, he just didn't want to pay it. So well, what, what did he say when you confronted him about this? Well, basically he didn't want to pay it at all, even though I did confront it. Um, and I asked him, I said, so why aren't I being paid any commission? And he said, well, it's my choice. You need to go through a six month probationary period first. And I said, but he's like, everybody else has gone through it. They're now out of that probationary period. They're now earning commission. So I can't release, relax my, my standards. I said, but it's in my contract. And what's in contract, you signed it, it, it goes. And he, he was just very stubborn about that. And in the end, I had the sales manager, I had everybody um, that was remotely close to that. They said to me, Jay, look, you've sold X amount of properties. You've done very, very well. You're a high achiever, um, but we can't pay you commission. And I said, okay. So I resigned not, that, not long after because I said, I might, for me, it was never about the money, but it was about the principle of the thing, whether or not right. you so, value me high enough. So, so, so here's the thing, obviously this guy was a bad guy and you, and, and this, this is not advice because I, I've been through that, what you just be, said you've been through mm. and I went through it for like a good 30 years wow. and, uh, uh, with different people. And it took me a long time to realize that a really important role of business and relationships and well, business is all relationships, right? So mm -hmm. at least in terms of, you know, not product development, but you know, who you work with, who you sell to, who your vendors are, who your bosses are, who your investors are, who your employees are, uh, who your customers are. There's a lot of relationships in business. And of course there's relationships in, in outside of business, like your, your, emo your emotional relationships, family and everything. But a big role in business relationships is one strike and you're out. People will always tell you who they are. They'll tell you right away, one way or the other. You can't hide it. It's too much work to hide it. They will always tell you who they are. And once you see one bad thing, that's who they are. Mm -hmm. and, and you have to not work with them after that. Like it's, it's no harm, no foul. You just leave. And, uh, uh, it took me a really long time. I kept trying to think to myself, well, that opportunity messed up, but this guy's got another opportunity even bigger. So do I leave now when he just has this bigger opportunity or do I take my chance that this is the big one? It's never, ever, ever the big one. It never gets better. It's, it's a, I used to have a three strikes in your house policy. Now it's a one strike in your house policy. It never gets better. Mm. That's what I noticed as well. But even when I left uh, that company, James, I felt this incredible sense of peace, like and, and satisfaction, like I did the right thing. And, you know, I've been looked after uh, and I wouldn't be able to do this, wouldn't be able to speak to you if I didn't leave that place. Yeah. So it's an amazing thing how, how life works out for us um, in, our, in our favor many, many times. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one little story. 
Please. One time I was considering, well, one time I was offered a position. I don't want to call it a job because it wasn't a traditional kind of job, but I was offered to be a partner in this, what's called a private equity firm. And potentially I could have made a lot of money. If you were a partner in a private equity firm and it does well, you make millions and millions of dollars. And, and I was flattered to be asked to be a partner in this firm. So the first day I go into the office, there's my name on a door. I have my own office. I have a secretary. It's a big fancy. It was, it, the building is what's the, 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 it was the tallest building on wall street is the Trump building on wall street on 40 wall street. Our, my office was like on the, I don't know, 50th floor or whatever, great views. And the second day I go to the main guy and I'm like, look, we haven't really spoke about my compensation. Like, how does this work? Like, do I get a base amount of money and then I get a percentage of the profits of the firm and do I get more if I bring in the deal and, and on and on. And he said, he, he said, James, just trust me. Hmm. And so when someone says, James, trust me, they didn't, he didn't answer my question. My question was, what do I make? And his answer was, trust me. That's not an answer. If, 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 the, ans if, if the answer was, oh, here's how we structure compensation, he would have said that. If his answer was, oh, you know, this is what we typically do. This is what, you know, the possibilities are. You know, he would have had a, he's running a firm. He would have had an answer if there was really an answer. So saying trust me tells me that there is actually no answer to my question. And I didn't know him long enough to trust him. Mm -hmm. uh, so the next meeting right after that meeting was a meeting I had set up with a bunch of Brazilian investors who were presenting deals to us. I had set up the meeting and um, I remember my suit jacket was in my office. I was wearing a suit then and I was in this meeting and after like 10 minutes, I, I just felt like I didn't want to do it anymore. And so they said, excuse me, I got to go to the bathroom. So I got up, I left the meeting. Instead of turning left towards my office or the bathroom, I turned right and I walked to the elevator. I took the elevator down 50 floors. I went on the subway, took the subway 80 blocks, went, took the train an hour and a half to my home. And I never went back to that office and I never spoke to them again. They, he called me every day for like two months. This, I should have told him, I should have told him I was uncomfortable with working there, but I, 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 this is my bad habit is that I tend to not want to talk to people ever again once their one strike happens. And so that, that's a bad habit that I've been trying to get over. But, but that was my one strike and you're out response, which is, okay, he showed me who he was, it's over. And so I basically just left. I left my suit jacket in the office. I had some books there. I left them in the office. I just never looked back and I never went back and I never talked to them again. You ripped off the bandaid. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, that's happened to me in the past. I've had people say to me, oh, just trust me, Jay. And I'd be like, what does that even mean, man? Like, what, what do you- And did it ever work out with any of those people? No, it didn't. Like, it never works out. You end up being more miserable and abused rather than. Yeah, I, I challenge all the listeners actually to think of all the times when someone has said, "Just, just trust me," and I will guarantee you, not once for anybody listening to this, I guarantee you, it has never worked out. 
There's the, uh, that just brought up my worst piece of advice I've ever heard. <laughs> just trust me. Oh, it makes my skin crawl to this day. The, the stories I could share. Um, oh my goodness. James. What, what's the story? What, what, what happened? So I was 14, I think I was 14 or 15 years old and I, I was, uh, and a car pulled over and said, I have some candy. It's going to be okay. <laughs> just trust yeah, yeah. me. Take down your pants. It's fine. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, not that bad. <laughs> um, but basically it was pretty much my, there's a guy from my, my church at the time and I, I didn't have a job and he wanted to be quite my mentor plus give me a, a job. And I was like, sure, sure. So he, he tells me to get in the car and then he's like, I'm going to look after you. Just trust me. And I'm like, what, what does that even mean? And he was like rich, successful. He, had, he drove a Mercedes Benz and you know, he was, he was all that. And I was thinking, great, you're successful. I want to be successful too. So when he said, just trust me, I thought he's going to make me very, very rich. Sure. We get to the office um, and he's like, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to give you a job and you're going to clean this office. It was a huge office. And I was like, sure. How much am I going to get paid? I didn't know. He's like, just trust me. And I was like, okay, fair enough. I, I respected him enough. I trusted his judgment on money and how much he thought it was worth. I was paid, James, for I worked four, three to four days a week. In a fortnight, I was paid anywhere from $200. And I was working uh, anywhere from three in the afternoon till about seven at night. Sometimes it would be nine at night. And I was paid barely anything and I was abused like you would not believe. And he was the man one day I was, I was cleaning. Um, so basically you were making the equivalent of something like $2 and 50 cents an hour. Pretty much. Yeah. Nothing. I was just so wrong. And I didn't really, I didn't really know how to confront him about it. I was so scared, so nervous. Uh, and then one day I just had enough because catalyst was I was cleaning the bins and I had a massive black garbage bag in my hand that was full and I had just made a, a movie for them and paid very little for that movie. The boss, my boss sees it. He walks out as a client of his in the, the waiting area and in front of the entire office, he says, I just saw the movie that Jay made. I don't like it. He's never going to be a filmmaker. He's never going to amount to anything. Oh, the, the sheer like pierce to the heart that I got and my stomach just dropped. I felt like this small. I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm done. I started rebelling against him. I started showing a lot of attitude after that because I just had enough. He was not valuing me as a person. And then I, I decided to resign. I left and the relationship has never been the same. And, uh, since, <laughs> yeah, well, so here's, here's something else, which is mentorships happen naturally. Mm. No one says I'm going to be your mentor because there's no such thing as, Oh, this is my Mr. Miyagi. Like this is my mentor <laughs> and I'm the mentee that doesn't really occur in real life. Like what happens is, is that you start working with someone 
younger or if you're young, you start working with someone older, giving them ideas and advice. You know, you try to kind of step up to the, like if you're, if you're looking for a mentor, you try to step up to their level and you try to provide value for them without them asking and, and you get noticed by them and they start commenting on the value you're providing. So it's just, there's no business relationship. It's just, you're now, you're just, you're trying to offer as much value as possible to someone you admire. And if they respond, they give you good advice. They kind of improve what you're suggesting. And maybe that could turn into a working relationship. Maybe it doesn't. It just becomes a friendship where they're providing value. You're providing, when you're a mentee, someone being mentored, you're providing value for them too. You might even be providing more value for them because that's how you become noticed by a mentor. But it's no, there's no title like this is my mentor. Like that doesn't happen. It happens very naturally. Like I would say in life, there's very few, there's a few people along the way who maybe I've been a mentor towards. And there's a few people, there's been quite a few people who have been a mentor to me. And it always started because I'm thinking of every single example now. It 100% always started because they had no idea who I was, but I would I would work and work and work and surprise this stranger with value that I've provided for them or created for them or suggestions that I've had for them. And then maybe they, they're like, who is this guy that gave me these great ideas? And they say, hey, come to my office and let's talk. And they, they say, I, I don't really like your ideas for this, this, this reason, but... Uh, what else do you do? And, you know, and then things start to develop either from a friendship direction or from a business employee direction or from just, you know, an idea sharing direction. And a mentor doesn't do too much for you. And you don't do like, that's not the wrong phrase. Uh, it's not like they should feel great about the value they're giving you. It's, it's always equal, even though mentor mentee, it feels like the mentor is giving more value. It goes both ways. And the problem with, here's the other advice about mentorship is that most mentorships end badly Yeah. because what I know from having been mentored many times, when I do mentor, I don't make the critical mistake that I've seen many of my mentors make, which is the whole idea of someone that you're kind of giving value to, who, by the way, again, is also giving value to you, is that you want them to pass you in success. That should always be your thought as a mentor is that I want this person to be better than me. So what happens in a lot of mentorships is that as you start to pass them or go in different directions, and this happens in marriages too, or relationships, but with mentors, as you start to pass them, they sometimes resent it and they hate you and they try to sabotage you or, or like in your case, they talk about you, you know, negatively either in front of you or behind your back or whatever. And so a lot of mentorships don't work out because the mentor has ego and thinks that, oh, well, I'm the mentor. I'm better always. But that's not the goal of, of mentorship. The goal is to have your mentees surpass you. And then you'll never feel that way. And it'll always work out. Mm. It'll always work out in ways that surprises both the mentee and the mentor. It's interesting, James, because you've been a, a kind of a mentor to me from a distance, even though you didn't know that because of all your content, all your, your books as well, and all the interviews that you've done over the years that I have in, ingested and, and just learned from all your experience and your stories, which I want to say thank you for. Um, oh, you're welcome. 
it's it's been been quite a profound conversation today. Um, and, and, and by the way, I'll say there too is that people shouldn't ignore the value of virtual mentors. Like this is the first time we're meeting over you know Zoom, and most of my men- mentorships are totally virtual, where I read books that I love and or listen to podcasts or you know, look back through history at people who have succeeded and try to figure emulate that success. And so most mentorships should be virtual because there's many more virtual mentors out there than actual mentors. Mm, good point you raised there. Um, James, I have two more questions for you, if you don't mind. We're definitely sure. going to come back and do a part two because I feel like I've only scratched the surface. Absolutely. <laughs> um, this one is my all-time favorite question I love asking at the end. So you've been able to reach the age of 100 and your friends have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got all the content. We'll just call it magic. But they've been able to show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Um, I think kind of like what you just said, actually, which is that you've benefited from in ways that I didn't know from things that I've created or worked on. And I'm really grateful for you saying that. And I think if there's, you know, that's the value you, you add to the world like that, you know, people, people think that there are a lot of ways to create value in the world, but there aren't really that many ways. There's just being a good person and being a kind person and expressing that in the outside world. Like it's one thing to be kind in your head, and it's another thing to take actions. And if you could take kind actions, people will notice and it'll affect people. It'll affect the people around you, like in, in concentric circles. It'll affect my kids, my spouse, my friends, my community, my readers and listeners, my you know customers or, or people I don't know who are indirectly being affected and then ultimately country world. It's like these concentric circles that go out, that ripple out. And, you know, so small, you know, throwing a small pebble in the ocean, the ripple that emanates from that ultimately reaches every shore, even tiny. And so I think, you know, if I, it was my hundredth birthday, I think those things that I'm not even aware of, um, you know, maybe a little bit aware, but not that much aware. Those are the things that I think that are, you know, show you that you've really added to the, to the world. Mm. And by the way, if you haven't added to the world, it doesn't really matter that much anyway, either. (laughs) People are what they are. We're kind of these insignificant animals on a tiny planet in the middle of a universe in maybe an infinitely large multiverse. And that's that. Mm. Very true. I I like that legacy you're going to leave behind. Um, kindness begets kindness and yeah. you've been very kind today, very generous with your time. Um, my final question to you, this is more of a fun one. You might like this one. Uh, but what is the weirdest food combination you've ever tried? I, well, it's, I, I can answer this very well because most people are repulsed by the answer and I can't understand why, because it's like an amazing food combination, but I love to have a combination of Pasta, tuna fish, and bananas. So pasta, you get that carby, almost semi, just like carby. 
Yeah. Carbs are great. Like we could all acknowledge the reason why everyone has a problem with carbs is because they are they're great. amazing. <laughs> so pasta is great. Tuna fish. I love fish and tuna fish. Is, so it gives that savory, almost salty feel. And bananas are sweet, but not overly sweet. It's not like candy. Um, and so when you combine them all, I don't know, it's just like this smorgasbord of amazing flavor in my mouth and it's great. And so I, I love that. And I never cook. The last time I cooked was like 30 years ago and I would make that all the time. And I would even encourage my friends. I would cook it for my friends and I'm like, oh, <laughs> I would make them eat it. And they're like, oh yeah, this is not so bad. But I just love that dish. But I haven't had it in like 30 years. Maybe you might have it uh, tomorrow or today. Who knows? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I haven't done, I don't do carbs that much because it's, uh, it's too good. <laughs> <laughs> it's very addicting. Um, yeah. One of my all-time favorite weirdest food combinations for people that want to try this. I tried it the other day. It works. Um, I don't know if you guys have this over in the States, but we got this thing in Australia called YoPro Yogurt. It's basically like the healthy version of yogurt. And it's, I get the vanilla stuff. And the other day I had, I was making myself like a bowl of yogurt. And what I normally do with it is I get peanut butter and stir it around with the yogurt and it tastes insane. Um, so I was making that. And at the same time I was eating carbs, which is uh, the natural confectionery lollies. Um, and I had those in my mouth and I wanted to take uh, a spoonful of the peanut butter with the, the yogurt. But instead of like the, the spoon was already full of yogurt in the first place. So I needed to get rid of the, the mouthful of yogurt before I could dip into the, the peanut butter and put it into the yogurt. So I, di I didn't want to try it with the lollies, but I was just like, ah, oh, stuff it. So I put the, the yogurt in, in my mouth with the lollies and it worked. It tasted yeah. insane. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you that would work. That sounds like something that would work. They're both kind of, kind of have a creamy taste. The peanut butter, you know, peanuts have a good taste. Uh, yeah, I bet that would work. It was an incredible flavor. And I'm like, this needs to be a business idea for somebody. Like, it's just a great flavor. I'm going to write into the YoPro. But anyway. It, it's like, it was like uh, how Reese's peanut butter cups is like the peanut butter combined with the chocolate. Yeah, and chocolate has that creamy flavor, like uh, yogurt, a little bit. Not exactly, but you know, they're sort of in a similar family. Mm. And uh, yeah, well, let me ask you a question. Yep. So, it seems like if someone wanted to have an Australian accent, so so U.S. accent, I'm up in my nose. I'm a little more navel, navel. Like like I say laugh, and you say laugh. laugh. Right. So that's like laugh. <laughs> here I'm, I'm feeling it in my throat laugh i'm feeling it like in my mouth and and nose so and then you kind of ex accentuate um the second syllable a little more like you can say laughing and i'll say laughing and so i'm more on the first syllable you're more on the second syllable so what's another australian accent technique uh lazy <laughs> lazy, lazy okay, but, with your speech. <laughs> but I say lazy also. So that we say similar. So what I mean by that is like if you don't feel like pronouncing something like fully, then you just be like really lazy to it. Like you don't pronounce the whole thing. You just shorten it. Like uh like how? uh what's a good example? Um
like, how are you doing? It's like, how you doing? You say, how you doing? Yeah. So instead of saying the full, how are you doing? We say, how you doing? Like, how you doing? Yeah. But I feel like people here say, do that too. How you doing? Hey man, how you doing? Like that. Yeah. So people say that you, you, you have on your shirt. Do you even say that? Do you even? Even say even, even e e yeah. See, it's a little more back in the throat. Even, even. All right. What what about um, say Australia? Australia, Australia. Always say Australia, Australia. So Australia. what's so what's happening there? So the it's like laughing. The ah is like a ah or oh, Australia, Australia, Australia. Uh, I don't know. I'm really bad with accents, but I want to get better at them. So we just, we just, um, like if we don't want to say fully Australia, we'll just say Australia, Australia. And you won't say Australia. You say Australia, Australia, which is basically like you, you kind of still hear the A, but not quite. Right. But when I say that it sounds similar, right? Australia, Australia. I'm saying it's similar to you though, right? Or maybe I'm not. I don't know. You can still hear the A that I'm saying, but we've shortened it. So instead of saying Australia, like actually pronouncing the A, we say Australia. Australia. Uh, I see. That that would be hard. That would be hard. Say say the word invention. In invention. That's like that's like American. Yeah. I guess it's close, but why do I there must be a lot of words that are different though. Oh, there's eight. Um, there's heaps. What, what else do we say? Uh, how do you say good morning? Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, it's pretty much the same, isn't it? Um, no, but you don't say like, yeah, yeah, no, I can't, I can't do that. Um, say dinner. 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 It's a little different. You don't say the R as, as much. No, dinner. <laughs> yeah, we- dinner. Heavily Did focused I, on the end, the end there. Uh, say um, England. England. I feel I'm influencing how you say it by <laughs> saying it first. Because like I would think you would say something like England. Do you, you say broccoli or broccoli? Broccoli. I say broccoli. And maybe that's just me because even my Aussie mates say why are you saying broccoli? I've never heard anyone say broccoli before. But I will say tomato. Tomato. Yeah, so that's like kind of a British thing. <laughs> um, all right, sorry. Just say like tomato. Say color. 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 And I say color. So yeah, I'm saying the R more at that when it's at the end. Color. Mm. Uh, say United States. Uh, United States. 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 States, mate. So I say with the, the long A as well, but there's something else you're doing with the A. States. United States. United States. States. America. All right. I'll, I'll figure <laughs> it out. But thank you for that, the tips. No, it was, that was fun. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it helps. Like I, I'm trying to get better at my American accent. I can do a, I can do a Southern, like, yo, Baba, go give me a shotgun. We'll give me some gators. Like, yeah, that sounded very Southern. Full on that was Southern. good. We'll go get me some McDonald's. Oh, that was great. Yeah. That's, um, 
That's like deep stuff. That's like Georgia or something. <laughs> I love Good. doing it. Like, or say, uh, so for McDonald's here in Australia, we say Maccas. So uh, we, we shorten the living crap out of it. <laughs> right. So that's like us. The shortening is like slang. Yeah. But then there's the accent. Um, behind it. Behind. Behind. So your eyes are very different. Behind. Mm. Behind. 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 And you you always you accent the second syllable a little bit more than Americans do. I don't know, I've just been thinking about this. What are the easy <laughs> techniques to learn an accent? It's good. I hope you um you can listen back to this and just hear me talk and and yeah, I'm I'm probably not the best example, but <laughs> there's probably some YouTube videos out there like six things and you'll speak like an Australian. Yeah, pretty much, man. <laughs> I love it, James. Thank you so much, man, for your time. All right, thank you, Jay. I appreciate it. Thanks. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the story box. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.